Um, if you could turn to Exodus 35, I'll give you a quick recap on the book of Exodus so far. God chose and used Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery uh, in Egypt. God led them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where God had originally called Moses. Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai, where God gave him the law, including the Ten Commandments. Moses was on top of this mountain for 40 days, and during this 40 days, the people of Israel grew impatient, and they essentially uh, erected a idol, a false god, a golden calf, to worship. And God told Moses that this was going on and told Moses that he would be starting all over with just Moses and would wipe out the entire nation of Israel. But Moses petitioned God, uh, begging God to not do this thing. God relents and agrees to not destroy the people. And Moses goes down the mountain and he sees the commotion of the people living in sin, worshiping this false god. And he throws down the tablets, which included the law, um, breaking them in anger. God then tells Moses that um, he is to go back up to the mountain to receive these tablets yet again. And during this journey that Moses is on, God tells Moses that he will not go with the people of Israel to the land he had promised, but instead would only go in front of them. And Moses, again, pleads with God, asking God to go not just in front of them, but to go with them. And if God was not with them, he did not want God to take them at all. He wanted God to be with him. So God relents yet again and says, yes, I will go not just in front of you, but I'll go with you. And Moses essentially just says, prove it by showing me your glory. And so God does just that. And that's kind of where that part of the series ended. And so we've broken up the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy into four parts, calling the sea, looking at the journey toward the Red Sea, the mountain, the journey towards Mount Sinai, and this week we start a part of the series called just simply the map. And we're calling this the map because it is essentially a map, if you will, of how to live as God's chosen people in this community that he has formed, and then we'll follow up this part of the series um, over the summer with a part we're going to be calling the desert. That will happen after the 4th of July. And the desert will be about Israel's desert wanderings um, as they're approaching the promised land. But we're looking today at the map. And as we, we start to think about the map, I can't think about this series without thinking about Dora the Explorer. We've got uh, maps and water, and there's no backpacks, but I'm sure Moses had one. So I'm thinking of Dora. But, but I do want to just kind of open our actual content today with just a little thought. Uh, in the year 2002, my family had gone on a uh, vacation, and we were flying back to uh, the Portland airport from the San Francisco airport late in the evening. And our plane, as we were getting ready to land, we realized it just never landed. We just kept circling and circling and circling and circling and people on the plane, myself especially, were getting pretty anxious in regard to, like, why aren't we landing? What, what's wrong? And we could hear the um, landing gear kind of going in and out. And one particular time, we descended to make the landing on the runway. Um, and as we were descending and landing, we could see emergency vehicles below, which was alarming. 
and then our plane just shot right back up again. We're like, okay, clearly there is uh, an issue. Um, we found out that the pilot decided to keep us in the dark for well over an hour. He could have just said it wasn't a big deal. So everybody was terrified. And the issue was is that there was a plane that was on the wrong runway, too close to our runway to make it safe to land. And so there we were circling again. All he would have had to say was we're waiting for a runway to be clear. But he loved to instill fear onto all of his passengers. But the, the big idea that we're going to get at as we kind of close this message today is that in order to land, the runway has to be clear. In order to take your landing, in order to arrive where you're going, it has to be prepared, it has to be cleared for you to actually land. And so Exodus 35, where we pick up this particular series, um, God tells Moses, while the people are living at the base of Mount Sinai, um, to construct and to erect the tabernacle. Uh, Nathan Amerson, uh, about a month or two ago, talked about the purpose of the tabernacle. But essentially, the tabernacle was this literal tent that God had shown Moses extensive plans for while he was on top of the mountain. And the tabernacle would be a place where God's presence would tangibly dwell. The tabernacle would be a place where worship and sacrifice would be offered up to God. But the tabernacle was also this physical representation of of paradise, as there is much imagery in the tabernacle reflecting back to the Garden of Eden. It's also a physical representation of the spiritual realm in which God and his heavenly host reside. And as Nathan explained really well, the tabernacle also um, would be a representation of the separation that exists between us and God due to sin. And so there was a holy of holies that only one priest could enter one time a year to make sacrifices for the atonement of sins. And this would be a place, again, that would show that sacrifice needed to be made in order for there to be forgiveness of sins. And so... The tabernacle is about to be built, and we can't read the chapters and chapters and chapters of all the details of what the tabernacle would require to build, but I want to touch on just briefly the fact that in order to build the tabernacle, that funds would need to be collected to build it, volunteers would be needed, and leaders would need to be appointed. And we are going to spend about just maybe like one-third of this particular message today looking at the idea that it takes funds, volunteers, and leaders to build something. I don't want you to get distracted by that and think that this is a a fundraising campaign or a volunteer campaign for this church. It's not, but we have to look at the text as we go through it in order to get to the main point for today. And so Exodus 35, verse 4 through 9, here is this fundraising request. Verse 4, it says, Moses said to all the congregation, to the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. This is what they were to bring. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen along with goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, Spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and 
onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. How many of you guys have this stuff laying around in your house today? Um, Goat skins, acacia wood, um, scarlet yarn, fine twine. These were things that were incredibly valuable in the ancient world. And so God calls Moses to call on the people to make a generous free will offering of these particular things. So just as this side note, not what the message is about, but, but your giving matters. God doesn't need money or goat skins or acacia wood to build his church, but giving is the method by which God has chosen for his people to build up the church. Um, it takes money to do things. It takes money to do ministry, and every amount that is sacrificed is making a difference. And as we talked about last week, when you give in this way, whether it's goatskins or it's money, you are literally storing up treasure in heaven. And so Moses then gives this volunteer request. He says in Exodus 35, verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So it's not just going to take money, but it is going to take people to do the work. And so your skills matter. Your time matters. The energy that you give matters. God uses your skills. God uses the skilled Israelites in order to build the tabernacle, and he uses the skills of the body of Christ to build up his church. He uses people who give of themselves to invite others into the presence of God because that's what the tabernacle was. It was essentially an invitation into the presence of God, and people were giving to invite others to the presence of God. They were serving to invite others to the presence of God. But it wouldn't just take money, and it wouldn't just take volunteers. It would actually take leaders. And so Exodus 35, verse 30. And if you'd like to look, kind of go back in time, uh, maybe later on today, read Exodus 31 as we hear about these same two people that are mentioned in Exodus 35. So verse 30 says, Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, and God has filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired Bezalel to teach both him and Oholiab. If you are having a child soon, might I suggest the name Oholiab or Bezalel? They might be skilled craftsmen. Verse 35 says, God has filled these two men with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So these guys were going to lead the crew of skilled craftsmen. These two men were going to lead the crew of volunteers. We'll look at them a little bit more in just a minute. So Exodus now, chapter 36, verse 1, it says, Bezalel and Oholiab... And every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work of the construction of the sanctuary 
They shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. If Bezalel and Oholiab were alive today, they certainly would have um, an HGTV show. These guys were skilled craftsmen. This week, as I was doing some work from home, um, for me, my mindless TV to have on is um, HGTV. Don't judge me. It's just that's who I am. And um, in particular, I enjoy the Magnolia network that is on Discovery+. And I was watching the show about people who rehabilitate old motels. And I was like, Lord, this is my dream life, is to rehabilitate old hotels. If anybody wants to fund this endeavor, I have one in Salem I'd like to buy. Just talk to me. We can work something out. Um, There'll be food carts. It'll be great. Um, But every kind of person was the exact same that was rehabilitating motels. And, like, these are the Oholiabs and the Bezalels of today's world. And so the reason I wanted to just kind of land here for just a minute is because your talent actually matters. The talent that you have, the passions that you have that seem like they don't really matter, like if you like to knit or crochet. I don't ever know if, is this knitting or crocheting? Knitting. Or it's also like making noodles. So knitting, crocheting, um, this is crocheting? That's sewing? Okay, no one knows here. Um, Knitting, crocheting, like you're knitting, you're crocheting, you're painting, your graphic design, you're drawing, your music, your piano playing, your singing, your construction, your woodworking. It matters. Your talents, your passions, they matter. Your ability to um, do things that I could never dream of doing just like throwing a ball. Your ability to play sports, uh, to lead others, to get their body into health and fitness, these things actually mattered. Your ability to cook and to make and to bake food, it, it actually matters. Your skills and talents matters. God gave those to you. God sees your talent. God wants you to develop your talent. And God actually receives honor with your talent. I talk to so many people, and because I happen to be a pastor, people are like, I could never be like you because I don't preach or I don't lead worship. I'm like, yeah, but you do this. And I would love to do what you do. So let's stop comparing what you do and what I do, and let's actually celebrate what each other does and recognize that all of it is done for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. And the body of Christ takes every sort to make it function and work, and not just in the structure of a church, but just the church globally, these are the things that God has called us to use our talents. We need artists. We need craftsmen. We need fashion designers in the kingdom of God. You say, fashion designers? That's what these guys literally were. They were going to make some of the most bizarre fashion you had ever seen, what these priests would wear as they entered into the Holy of Holies. They were going to have rocks put on the front of their shirts. See, everybody can play an equal part in carrying out God's plan for his kingdom and lead others in the vision that God has given. And so I just I want to just kind of stay here again for a second. Don't underestimate your skill. Don't belittle the things that you are passionate about. But you've got to use those things. You, you've got to develop those things. You have to actually... Um, fine-tune the craft in which God has given you. And sometimes 
life can get so full and so busy that you don't do the things that God has given you the ability to do when the world actually needs those things. And so I would encourage you to dream again, encourage you to have vision again for what God could use, some of the skills you have to accomplish, not just to help others, but actually bring you joy, actually bring you health. Oftentimes, we don't find health for our own soul if we're not doing the thing that God has put in our soul to do. So here's the response that we see in Exodus 36, verse 2. It says, Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. So here we learn Oholiab and Bezalel and the skilled craftsmen, they were actually the ones who received the free will, generous offerings that the people had given. And in verse 3 it says, the people still kept bringing the Lord free will offerings every single morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and they said to Moses the people bring much more than enough to do the work that the Lord has commanded us to do how many of you would like this problem we've got too much stuff we have too much food we have too much money We have too many vehicles. We have too much property. We've just got too much stuff. We don't know what to do with it. Only one time in my life have I ever had someone come up to me and say, I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it. I was like, teach me about this. How does does this happen? Verse 6, Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contributions for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Can you imagine a nonprofit organization saying, please stop giving, we have too much? Can you imagine a church saying, please stop giving, we have too much, we don't know what to do with it? Now, don't give too much credit to the Israelites here, because they had just melted down the majority of their gold to erect a golden calf and to worship it. These guys were not all that. And if you think about it, there would have been much more to give to the generous free will offering for the, the, not the temple, the tabernacle, if they wouldn't have just wasted most of the stuff they gave. And so they gave generously. They gave with with a free will, with a free heart. They gave of their own accord But you've got to understand they also had the fear of God in them because God just destroyed a lot of them, and God had warned them and threatened to destroy everybody because of what they had just did with their stuff. And so now they want to do what's right with their stuff, and they want to bring their stuff, which wasn't their stuff at all. It was God's. They want to return it back to God. So here's the final thought on this. If everyone gave, if everyone served, If everyone led as they were gifted, if everyone led as they were called, God's house would have all that it needed. We could do all the work and more. If everyone in churches gave, if everyone in churches volunteered, if everybody led where they were gifted and called, the world would be a radically different place. Needs would be met like never before. 
people would be reached like never before. All the needs were met. And so the next four chapters detail the elaborate construction of this tabernacle. All of the instruments of worship that would be stored within the tabernacle. Bezalel and Holiab and all their crew, they construct the tabernacle. And then upon its completion, here's our point today. Upon its completion in chapter 40, it's recorded um, this about the place where God would meet with man. Exodus 40, verse 34. It says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. The tabernacle is constructed. The glory of the Lord falls. And the glory of the Lord is so strong that Moses cannot even enter the tabernacle. And 400 years later, Solomon, a descendant of the Israelites, would build a temple. And upon the temple in the city of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, God's presence would fill that temple. And sacrifices would be made there for the sins of the people. And about 900 years after that was built, Jesus Christ would be born in the flesh who the book of Hebrews calls our great high priest. Jesus was God's very presence in the flesh. And Jesus would offer himself up as the priest and as the sacrifice to forever forgive the sins of those who put faith in him. And upon his death, upon his resurrection, and upon his ascension to the Father in heaven, His presence would then come and fill, not a tabernacle and not a temple, but his presence would fill the church. So now each and every one who calls on the name of Jesus to be saved is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And as the Bible says multiple times, our bodies, individually and as a whole, as the church, our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. So now the Spirit doesn't reside in a tabernacle, it resides in our heart as we await the return of Christ to make the whole world his temple, his tabernacle. You see, Moses literally made space for the presence of God. Moses made space for the presence of God. The people gave to it, the people worked for it. The people walked in their giftings to see it, and God's glory filled the temple. There's other examples of this. Um, God told Noah to build an ark. Noah built the ark, and God filled it. God told Joseph to build storehouses in Egypt, and God filled them. The priests 
carrying the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Joshua. God told them to put their foot into the Jordan River, and once they did, the river stopped so that they could cross. Solomon spent his life building the temple, and he built it, and God filled it. The church on the day of Pentecost, it made room for the presence of God, and God filled it with the Holy Spirit. Here's our big point. When you make space for the presence of God, he'll show up. When you make space for the presence of God, he will show up. Jeremiah 29, 13. Paraphrasing, God says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all of your heart. There is a promise that God will fill your space if you make room for him to fill. And when you're doing kingdom work, when you're giving, when you're serving, when you're using your gifts, when you're leading, it will never be in vain. It can't return void. God will show up. And I know that God's spirit resides within me as a Christian. I know that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit, just as the church is. But I want his glory to actually fill me. That's why Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. It's a continuous command for us to follow. Be filled with the Spirit. I want the presence of God to be so strong in my life and in this church that people will not be able to avoid the presence of God, that people won't be able to ignore the presence of God, that God's glory would be so thick that you couldn't avoid it, you couldn't get around it, you couldn't ignore it. And I want to make space for the presence of God in my life. And I want God's glory to fill that space. But if I want this space to be filled, I have to clear out space for him. That airplane had to get off of the runway so that the plane could land. And so many of us, we've got planes sitting on the runway where only The plane that carries the presence of God was meant to land, but we've got stuff in the way. In order for God to fill us, we need to make room. We need to clear out space in our heart. The most important place you could create space for the presence of God is in your schedule. I need to make space for God with my attention. I need to make space for God in my home. And I've got to repent of the sin in my life and move on from the sin in my life so that the space can be filled with more of him. And I want to put in whatever work that that takes to see his glory fill this space. You say, Pastor, what does this have to do with Mother's Day? Well, first of all, we don't, we don't gather in church to, to worship moms, right? You guys are here to to worship Christ. But because it's Mother's Day, I want to encourage mothers in this area. So if you're a mom, listen. Every prayer that you pray, every hour of painful labor that you go through, every hug, every kiss, every sleepless night of feeding your child, every book read, every story told, every diaper changed, every single bedtime routine, every bath given, every tantrum 
that you deal with. Every toy that you pick up, it's endless. Every load of laundry that you do. Not that this is just for moms, by the way. Um, every sippy cup that you fill. Every scripture that you read. Every song that you sing. And every hour that you work to provide for your children is not in vain. If you're doing this for the service of the kingdom of God, what you're doing is you are creating space for the presence of God in your home. And more importantly, you are creating space for the presence of God in the hearts of your children. And so these, dear mothers, these things are laying up treasures in heaven. And you may think as as a mom that you don't have much money, skill, or time to give. You don't have many talents to use. You don't have giftings to walk in or to lead in. You're no Moses, you're no Bezalel, you're no Oholiab. But you are doing some of the most important work of all time. And you are giving the most valuable of things, which is your love. So as you make space for God in your home and in the lives of your children or your grandchildren, make space and take some time to spend with God yourself. As he fills them, you need to fill yourself. And these times where you are pressing in to have the glory of God fill your heart, and these times where you are pouring into the life of your children, those can be some of the times where God's glory is the absolute thickest, I would say. And I am far away from having babies or, or, or tiny children. But some of the memories of, you know, rocking my son or my daughter to sleep. Some of those um, horrible nights of being up all night to console crying or a bad dream, some of the best memories, some of the best time I've ever had or spent. And during those times, it seemed as if the presence of God was the strongest because there I was caring for what Jesus calls the least of these, not least in value, but least in needing most of our support, most of our love. So we're all called to build the tabernacle. We're all called to build the temple. We're all called to build the church. We're all called to build the kingdom, but we can't build it unless we give to it. We can't have God's presence fill it unless we're willing to put in the work. Not that our work will ever obtain it, but it's how God has chosen for the space to be filled. If we never walk in our giftings, our callings, or the leadership that God has called us to, we'll never walk in the presence and the plan and the path that God has for us as if we wouldn't. So as moms or dads, workers, volunteers, wherever you find yourself, in your relationships, your marriage, make space for God in your life. And that's what you're doing everywhere you go. At work, make space for God. As a Christian, when you walk into the office on Monday morning, in a strange way, you're bringing the manifest presence of God with you as his spirit resides within you. And where the spirit of the Lord is, the Bible says there is freedom. And so somehow, some way, you're actually bringing freedom into your workplace. I don't get it. 
But if we're walking in it, people notice. People do say things like, what's, what's different about you? Why, why do you have this or this or this in your life? And trust me, I know we all lack this or this or this in our life so much, but, but what they're saying is, what is this presence that I sense? What is this glory that I'm recognizing? And it's not us, it's Jesus Christ. And you can invite people to experience the same things that you experience. And you might say, well, I've never experienced it. I'm walking far from God. I'm in a slump. I get it. But even when we're in a slump, would you make space and room and time for the presence of God? Because he'll show up. He'll fill that space. He promises he'll do it. If you seek him, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. Would you bow your heads as we wrap this time up in prayer? God, if there's anything in the way of us encountering you, if there's anything in the way of your presence being known in our heart, in our home, in our lives, in our children, would you show us what's in the way? Lord, would your spirit, uh, with kindness, lead us to repentance? God, if there is sin or if there's even good things in our life in the way of you, Convict us of those, thing, those things so that we can make space for you. God, when we fill our schedule, when we fill our mind and our eyes with things of this world, would you remind us and call us to set our eyes on things that are above? And church, as, as we're praying this, just... I'd encourage you this week, is there, is there something that maybe you could or should fast from? Again, not necessarily sinful things, but something you could fast from in order to make more space for God in your life. This last week, um, I know God called me to fast from a particular thing, and I didn't want to, but I did, and it did create space for the presence of God. So what's something maybe God's calling you to remove from your life, either permanently or for a season, so that you can make more space for him? I talked with a friend this week who said, yeah, I'm convicted about this thing in my life. And we, we kind of wrestled with what that thing was. And I just said, hey, I respect your conscience. And I respect the Holy Spirit leading you to leave this thing out of your life. It wasn't necessarily a sinful thing. But it was something that my friend said, this is getting in the way of me walking with God. And so we prayed and we celebrated moving away from that thing and moving towards the presence of God. What do you need to build in your life so that God will fill it? Build space, build Bible study, build prayer time, build worship. What do you need to remove to make space for God in your life? Remove it. And if you've never made space for the presence of God, if you don't have relationship with God, then God's made space for you. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who existed and exists forever and always with the Father and the Son, co-equally, co-eternally as the one true God of all creation. 
The Father sent the Son, God in the flesh, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, a life full of space for the presence of God because he was God. A sinless life in our place that we could not live to die the death for our sins that you and I deserve to die so that our sins might be forgiven and washed away in the life and death of Jesus Christ. But God was not satisfied with us to just have our sins forgiven, but instead to have relationship with him for eternity. And so Jesus, on his own accord, rose from the grave, and by doing so, showed and defeated Satan's sin, hell, and death. So that through his life, death, and resurrection, our sins could be forgiven. Our relationship with God can be restored. His Holy Spirit can dwell in us like a temple. And he grants to us everlasting life with him. And this thing, we call it Christianity. We call it following Jesus. We call it being saved, whatever you want to call it. It's a free gift of God that is given as a gift of grace, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. I deserve hell, but God gave me his son, grace. And like all gifts, grace must be received. And like a gift, a gift cannot be earned with work. That wouldn't be gift. That would be a wage. So gifts are received with faith with trust. So God offers you these things today freely, and you simply receive them by putting trust in him. So Jesus himself says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is your only option, he's in control of your life, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Paul also says in the book of Romans, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'd invite you today to call on the name of Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to surrender your life to him so that he could give his life to you. And if that's you, if you say that's something I want for myself today, I'd encourage you in your own words, in your own voice, just begin to cry out to God. Tell him you give him your life. Thank him for his. Receive his forgiveness and his love over your life and choose to follow him, to put aside yourself, to make space for him and follow him wherever he leads. And if you've trusted in Jesus today, if you've never done that before, let us know. We've got some connection cards and chair backs. Um, You can just let us know. I gave my life to Jesus, or today maybe you recommitted your life to Jesus. We'd love to know. If you're watching online, we'd love to know. If you just message us, let us know. Today we're starting relationship with Christ. And for those who say, hey, I I know him. I know Jesus. That's wonderful. I do too. But I, so much of the time, do a lousy job of making space for him. Would you, Christian, follower of Jesus, would you this week, choose to make space for him. So God, we we do make space for you. We ask you to fill it. Not for our own good, but for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing?